of the Long Line of Godly Men series, and I was reading about a number of the men who were present when God had done revivals in church history. And I say they were present because God does the work, but he did it through faithful preaching of people like John Calvin and and Martin Luther and Jonathan Edwards and John Wycliffe and um, all the many others that are not all coming to mind right now, but that every time that there was a major move of God's spirit in revival, it was all centered along biblical preaching. As God's word is presented, his gospel unadulterated and unfiltered to the people with the spirit of God speaking through his word, revival can come. And wouldn't you like to see it happen among us? Wouldn't you like to see it here? I said in Sunday school, if you ever pray for revival, pray, Lord, first do it in me. So let's pray together, and then we'll hear from his word, and we'll ask the Lord to continue doing a work uh, in us. Lord, we thank you for the encouragement that you are pouring out your Holy Spirit in revival at this great uh, place in Kentucky, Asbury. Lord, people, I've heard the reports are spontaneously standing up and confessing of sin, repenting before not only you, but before others. And, and Lord, their, their desire for you is so strong that they don't even want to leave. And people can't even park on the university parking. It's so full of people coming to see what you're doing. And Lord, we know that there's probably some that are coming just as looky-loos. They're just gonna see what's going on. But Lord, there are many there who are sincerely being touched by you and we thank you for that. And I pray, Lord, that as Oasis Church continues to grow in your grace through your word, that you would do it here as well. But start, Lord, in my heart, I pray. Give me revival, Lord, and give us revival that we may glorify you with our lives. And as we hear from your word this morning, May we be listening to you and responding appropriately to the message and the commands you give us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. The message is titled, The Right Response. Uh, We've been in the book of Luke for a while now, and we're still there. It's a great book and lots of things that we're learning from it, hopefully. And we're in chapter 3. We're going to mainly focus on verses 10 to 14 this morning, but I will read a longer section so we have the context once again. Um, So the right response, or the subtitle, The Reality of Repentance, um, I want to give you a big idea and a few points here to consider if you're a note taker. Um, The big idea, uh, or propositional statement, whatever you want to call it, is sincere repenters seek ways to live anew. Sincere repenters seek ways to live anew. And then these three points I want to look at as we go through the text. When repentance is preached, there are spontaneous responses that we see recorded in Scripture and throughout church history. Number two, egotistic people become benevolent. And number three, malcontents find fulfillment. Last week, we talked about the big idea that true salvation must include repentance, and true repentance always bear fruit. So we're on the same theme. We're continuing on that theme this morning. Last week, we talked about the vipers that flee the fire. We talked about the, 
the children of God that bear his fruit, and we talked about dead trees that end up as fuel for the fire. And so we're going to continue that theme this morning. I want to read chapter 3, verses 1 through 22, though, for us to begin. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Traconitus, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. One of our songs sang about that this morning. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages." As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison." Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. So again, the subtitle this morning is The Reality of Repentance. What happens when there is true repentance? Sincere repenters seek new ways to live anew. And when repentance is preached, there are spontaneous responses, egotistical people become benevolent, and malcontents find fulfillment. Verse 10, we go back. The crowds asked him, what then shall we do? 
In several places in Luke's writing, both in the Gospel of Luke as well as Acts, we find similar or actually the same questions sometimes, or at least similar. These questions came to Jesus. In Luke 10, 25, behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? In Luke 18, 18, a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You see that the response to the preaching of the word of God when the Holy Spirit is working in the hearts of those listening is that those people whom God is drawing to Jesus through the message will be concerned or even alarmed or at the very least have a great desire to do what is good and what is right. All of these responses come when the Holy Spirit is doing a regenerative work in the heart of the hearer. I pray each week that whatever message I'm preaching may work in the hearts of the hearers. And this only happens if the Holy Spirit wills to do that work. For what it is worth, I spend much time in God's word concerning myself with how to preach each passage. And indeed, it can be a great burden for even when the study is complete, then I must grapple with how to preach it. How will I make the message clear? What are the points of this message that, are, that those listening are needing to hear? Will the entire congregation be able to get something useful from it? So each week, as I joked to Janelle a couple of days ago, another Sunday is coming, <laughs> and what will I preach? No matter what a bang-up job I may think I did in preparing or in study and prayer and putting together the message, unless the Holy Spirit does the work of drawing people to Jesus and causing them to believe the truth of Scripture, it's all for nothing. I am but a man who can make mistakes to which my family and anyone who knows me well will certainly confirm to you if you like. Not one word of what I preach will have any effect at all but God. But God who works through this thing that has been called the folly of preaching and makes stone hearts into hearts of flesh and brings those dead in their sin to life in Christ. He does the entire work. He gets the glory. And oh, how glad you should be that you need not depend on me. I will certainly let you down if you stick around long enough. But our good God will never let you down. So when we see the response to preaching, when God does that beautiful work we call regeneration, whereby he brings a person dead in their sins to be able to receive the gospel and respond in faith that he is truly an amazing God who takes what some may seem, think is foolish, and is foolish to the world, and he uses it to make men and women and children wise unto salvation. And so the response came to the preaching of Jesus, what shall I do? How can I receive this eternal life? And they said to John the Baptist as well, what then shall we do? And in response to the miracles on the day of Pentecost, when Peter gave his sermon, the people there, as Luke records, cried out likewise in this question. 
Acts 2.37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What sweet words to the preacher's ear. What praise and joy Peter must have felt. The same joy that John must have felt and Jesus himself certainly must have felt when hearing the preaching of the good news of the gospel that people respond like this, what should I do? Preacher, what should I do with this message? Oh, that the Holy Spirit would cut to our hearts. That when we hear the preaching of God's word, we would respond like this. What should we do? And this is the response of the Philippian jailer who is about to commit suicide after Paul and Silas had their midnight hymn sing. And an earthquake shook the prison and he was afraid the prisoners had left and Paul cried out to him do not harm yourself for we are all here and in Acts 16 30 it says he brought them out and said sirs what must I do to be saved and so Paul must have thought in this case I have not even yet preached and here's a response how powerful the Holy Spirit was working in the heart of the jailer that evening, that he cried out asking what he must do. Paul and Silas most certainly would not shirk their gospel duty and saw a responsive person, so they give a very simple answer to which all who come to Christ at some point marvel because it seems like too simple a thing to do to be saved. We read it in Acts 16, starting at verse 31. They said... Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. And he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Believe? Is that all I have to do? Yes, and yet, it's no easy thing. It requires one to be humble. And many are incapable of the humility it takes to cry out before God. In fact, we're completely unable to do it without the Holy Spirit doing a regenerative work in our heart. So many today, instead of replying as Paul and Silas would have said to the jailer, do you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? You don't find this language anywhere in Scripture, by the way. You aren't ever asked to accept Jesus. You are commanded to believe. In fact, it's the other way around. Rather than saying you will accept Christ, you ought to fall on your knees and beg him to accept you. It isn't, he isn't some candidate for political office who needs your support. He isn't some product at a trade show that after hearing the sales presentation, you should be asked, why won't you accept him? No, when the gospel is preached and the Holy Spirit is actively drawing people to Jesus, then they will not need to be gently asked to accept him. They will rightly seek to find out what it is that they must do. And so we see in nearly every description of a conversion in the New Testament, no altar calls are recorded. The message was preached. Some mocked. Some got so mad they wanted to kill the preacher. And some believed. And those who believed were cut to the heart and instantly humbled to the point where they must only ask, what must I do? 
My last example from Luke's writings is Paul himself, after persecuting the church and hating Jesus, and suddenly and miraculously, Jesus himself spoke to him, and he asked, who are you, Lord? Jesus answered, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And what was Paul's response? Did he say, but wait, Jesus, you have not yet asked if I would accept you. No, his response was like those who heard John the Baptist preach, like those who heard Jesus preach, like the Philippian jailer, Acts 22.10, he said, what shall I do, Lord? Paul's response when he encountered the living Christ was to ask that same question. It is a question of curiosity, what the person indicates that they need some information. It is a question of humility that says, I recognize my need, It is a question of fervor where the one asking this question has a burning sense of their desperate state as a sinner before a holy God. What shall I do? So the people are coming out to John and they're seeking to receive his baptism of repentance. They hear his chastisement when he calls them a brood of vipers. They hear his warning about the wrath to come. They hear that they must not depend on being children of Abraham. They hear him and his urgency that the ax is laid at the root of the trees, that trees without good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And so they ask, what then shall we do? And John gives them some practical ways to live out. Now the repentance that was initiated in his baptism. We see that three main groupings are addressed. First, the crowds. In other words, verse 11 can be applied to all those who are seeking true repentance. And then he specifically addresses tax collectors and then soldiers. So first in verse 11, he answered them, whoever has two tunics to share with him has who has... Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Here, what John is teaching should be of no surprise to anyone who is part of Israel. After all, if Israel was the original D6 class and had known very well that each generation had an obligation to teach and learn God's law, to have it on their hearts, to speak of it all the time, then it should have been a completely boring and repetitive idea for John to speak of sharing. I mean, isn't this basic stuff that we deal with our own children all the time? There's only two hot dog buns left. Can you share with your sister? And yet this is presented by Luke as something quite profound, as though this very basic training from the Old Testament was being rightly applied, at least for some of these people, the very first time. It sure wasn't new. One of the virtues of Job was his delight in helping those in need. Job 31, 16 through 20. He says, if I have withheld anything that the poor desired or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail or have eaten my uh, morsel alone and the fatherless has not eaten of it, for from my youth the fatherless grew up with me as a father and from my mother's womb I guided the widow. If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing or the needy without covering, if his body has not blessed me and if he was not warmed with the fleece of my sheep and he goes on, this is no new concept to Israel. Isaiah said, this is the fast that God chooses or delights in. Isaiah 58, 6 and 7. Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke. 
Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? And Ezekiel finds this to be the mark of a righteous man, that among other kindnesses, he gives bread to the hungry. Ezekiel 18, starting at verse 5. If a man is righteous and does what is just and right, if he does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel does not defile his neighbor's wife or approach a woman in her time of menstrual impurity, do not oppress anyone, but restores to the debtor his pledge, commits no robbery, gives his bread to the hungry, and covers the naked with a garment, does not lend at interest or take any profit, withholds his hand from justice, executes true justice between man and man, walks in my statutes, and keeps my rules by acting faithfully. He is righteous. He shall surely live, declares the Lord God." Therefore, John the Baptist is simply calling the people to live in accordance to the ethical ways that they already should have been. We see throughout Luke's writings that he had a social concern. Luke 6.30, give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Luke 12.33, sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where thief no thief approaches and no moth destroys. In Luke 14, 12 to 14, he said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. But you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And again in Luke 18, 22, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. John's commands here in Luke chapter three are nothing new. They're God's commands. God's commands are not new and they need, that they need to be taught them for the first time, but they have strayed so that they must be reminded of them. And so often we need the reminding of the teachings of Scripture. Luther said something along the line of, we need to daily hear the gospel because we daily forget the gospel. It's true. Now, when we see all these passages about giving and clothing the naked and feeding the hungry, giving a tunic away if we have two, then many people start to get worried. They start to think, oh, the Bible, is is he saying socialism? Is he saying communism? Yet that is not at all what the Bible teaches. You must remember that these are general principles. You are not commanded to let your own family suffer to take care of people outside your family, for example. We lived on the Yankton Sioux Indian Reservation before we came here. We saw poverty all around, children in the cold without coats, people without food. And while we found it a privilege in the Lord to help some who we could help, I knew I would not be a very good father if I took my own family's needs away from them and gave them to others. However, it may be well worth considering for all of us how much we really need. So this is not advocating socialism or communism or something like that. This is, this is an individual thing that people are to evaluate before the Lord. Uh, Lenski said this, No indiscriminate giving is advocated by John or Jesus, but a giving that relieves real human need. And he also said a mark of conversion is honesty in all our dealings, but honesty for God's sake. 
So we have opportunities to give in many ways, and we should seek to reduce the pain and suffering in the world around us. And in John the Baptist's view, this is the natural result of true repentance. Being generous is not proof of conversion. It's not proof of real repentance, but true conversion and true repentance will most certainly result in the evidence that comes when we share our worldly goods with those in need. Again, our subtitle was The Reality of Repentance. This is what it looks like. Sincere repenters seek ways to live new, right? And when repentance is preached, there's spontaneous responses. Egotistic people become benevolent and malcontents find fulfillment. Egotistic people become benevolent. Luke 3, 12, and 13, then we're going to talk about the tax collectors. Everybody's favorite enemy, right? Uh, The tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. I'm not sure too much needs to be said about tax collectors and how much they're loved by the community. Um, We see the pairing in the Gospels. Uh, They're always uh, often paired together, tax collectors and sinners, as though it's all the same thing, right? Uh, Tax collecting in those days was actually like a business. You would get contracted by the government. Um, But it was a business that was somewhat mafia-like. So tax collectors would bid for their position. And if you had enough money and could pay Rome a certain amount, then they would allow you to be the tax collectors. And and Rome just wanted what they wanted. And if you could collect above that, then they could, and they did. And they could strong-arm people under the threat of the law. It was almost universally thought that all tax collectors in that day were crooked. And in the Jewish community, not only that, but they were considered traitors to their own people. We can see the assumption in John's answer that reveals that he seems to think they're bad people because he only gives them one simple direction. Collect no more than you are authorized to do. That may seem like something too easy, but if you understand wicked hearts and let us not be liars and say we do not know wicked hearts since all of us have first-hand experience with our own wicked hearts and our own wicked nature before we came to Christ, as well as our ongoing battle to put to death sin in our lives, But since we do indeed have an understanding of the inclination of the human heart towards wickedness, let us acknowledge that for these tax collectors, this one evidence of true repentance, this one task that John gives them is certainly quite a challenge. John is more or less pointing out that this one change would be enough for the world to make the observation that something was radically different. This would be evidence or fruit in keeping with repentance. And yet you may still say to yourself, really, just the one change, that's all they had to do? How hard could it be to just keep one rule? I invite you to ask Eve about that if you ever meet her. Certainly God knows the hearts of people. And for some, just the step of obedience of one command provides all the evidence that is needed regarding the genuineness of the person's confession. Finally, our last point is malcontents find fulfillment. We now see the question once more, this time from soldiers in in verse 14. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. 
and be content with your wages. I found out in, in the past couple of weeks as I've studied this passage that there's been much discussion about whether uh, they, these are soldiers of Rome or soldiers attached to the temple or perhaps even hired mercenaries who were contracted by the tax collectors that we just discussed. It seems to me pretty likely at any rate they were Jewish people. I personally just don't feel like Roman soldiers would be flocking out to undergo a Jewish baptism, although it's possible. However, since Scripture does not tell us exactly what type of soldiers these are, perhaps we're better off not to worry too much about it, although some commentators indeed had much to say on the topic, so it is important to some of them. However, we need not worry our pretty little heads too much about this, since the lesson we can draw from it has little bearing on the exact type of soldiers they are. Instead, we know enough about the very nature of these soldiers since John gave them very specific instructions as well. Do not extort money by threats or false accusations and be content with your wages. Now, the root word that's translated to extort here literally means to shake thoroughly and thus to terrify. In other words, no shakedowns. Soldiers in those days were like policemen today. And sadly, in those types of occupations where someone has a position of power, or at least the ability to make someone else's life miserable, there is corruption. Not to say all powerful people are corrupt, but we know that it happens. I quote Lenski again, and Calvin said something similar, that each station in life has its peculiar temptations and sins. In other words, no matter who you are, your life will bring certain temptations about that may be unique to your situation. In the case of these soldiers, a major temptation must have been to shake people down. Along with this negative command to not do these things, John also gives a positive command, be content with your wages. Many years ago, I was a manager of some retail stores, and one morning on reviewing uh, cash register reports and receipts from the night before, I found a fishy-looking refund receipt. Long story short, a cashier had faked a return and gave himself about $200 from the cash register. And as I was discussing this with the general manager of the company, he made a statement that stuck with me and has been a lesson ever since, and it's actually a biblical lesson. But he said when an employee feels he's paid too little or has otherwise convinced himself that he's worth more than what he's getting paid, in other words, he's discontent with his wages, then he feels justified in stealing from the very company he works for. And this is the danger of being a malcontent. And certainly it was the case with the young man who ended up deported over the theft of the $200 that he had often complained along with some of his coworkers then felt that he should have been paid better or gotten more favorable shifts. But my boss was right. This sort of malcontented attitude makes one feel justified in stealing. For the soldiers who came to John the Baptist, they likely found themselves grumbling about their wages as well. And in this malcontented attitude, along with the power they had as soldiers, caused them to often extort money. They had learned and perfected many different ways to do the proverbial shakedown. For each of us, this lesson is a strong one. That when we find ourselves suffering from a malcontented attitude, 
we are much more likely to partake in grievous sins, whether it be theft or some other taking advantage of our opportunities. We must be content and work on being content so that we can avoid some of the temptations that come when we feel entitled to more than we deserve. I read recently a short biography on Jonathan Edwards. Early in his life, he wrote 70 resolutions that he would live his life by. And I'm going to share just one of them because I think he had the key to being content, and that was not by, by not thinking more highly of himself than he ought. And here it is, resolution 8. Resolved to act in all respects, both speaking and doing, as if nobody had been so vile as I, and as if I had committed the same sins or had the same infirmities or failings as others, and that I will let the knowledge of their failings promote nothing but shame in myself and prove only an occasion of my confessing my own sins and misery to God. This is helpful toward contentment. And also that if we never expect to receive any honor or congratulations or commendation from people, and realize that if not for Christ, we would merit no commendation at all, then we can be content even when we are not recognized or encouraged or compensated to the degree we might have. So again, subtitle, The Reality of Repentance. What does repentance look like practically? And, And repenters that are sincere seek ways to live anew. There are spontaneous responses when the gospel is preached and the Holy Spirit is active, egotistical people become benevolent and malcontents find fulfillment. And now in closing, as we consider what we have said from God's word, let us each consider our own selves in light of this word. Every passage of scripture we encounter should cause us to ask some questions. Some questions work for every passage. Questions such as, what does this pas- how does this passage draw me closer to Jesus? And what does he require of me in this passage? What does it tell me about how to love him better? What does it teach us about the church and our own involvement in it? How can we encourage one another to walk in this truth? All good questions for any passage of scripture you study. And certainly there is much more than the points I made that could be said, but let us consider at least some parts of this together. First, our big idea that... uh, one sentence or phrase that sums up this message, sincere repenters seek ways to live anew. Or perhaps we may say instead that sincere repenters always seek ways to live anew. It is an automatic fruit of the regeneration of the Holy Spirit by which we come to faith in Jesus. Yet we must remind ourselves not to put the cart before the horse We must not ever think that our works or obedience in any way contributes to our salvation. Scripture clearly tells that if we are in Christ, it is only because he, by the Spirit, has drawn us. Jesus said no one comes to him unless the Father draws him. If we are regenerated, if we have put saving faith in Jesus, then that work is all of God. He alone provides our salvation, and we deserve no credit at all, which is why Paul reminded the Ephesians in Chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. No works bring salvation. But most assuredly, salvation is evidenced by works. 
Another way to look at it is to understand that our love for Jesus should drive us to do these good works willingly. Not being dragged into it, not begrudgingly fulfilling our duty, but with great joy and energy. And if you have lost this, you may be in need of returning to Scripture to remind yourself of the goodness of God in his salvation. You may, like David, need to ask him to restore unto you the joy of your salvation in order that you may again serve him with the love and grace you once had. This prayer, I am sure if you are in Christ, he will answer. Sincere repenters always seek ways to live anew. They always respond to the gospel with a sense of urgency and need to follow through. Perhaps you look back, and this may be painful to do, but your eternity is on the line, so this is well worth doing to look back on. Maybe you look back in your life in the church, and you cannot recall a time ever having this sort of reaction to the gospel, the sort of reaction that caused you to ask the question, what am I supposed to do? And you may have never asked this question because many presentations of the gospel these days tell you what to do before you've asked the question. So people hear a presentation of the gospel and then they are invited to accept Christ. Yet this is not biblical. I'm not saying it's meant badly. But we must be scriptural in how we teach and present what the Bible says. You see, when the gospel is presented and people, by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, are moved to believe it, we need no altar call for those individuals affected by this message will have an uneasiness until they have settled once and for all that they are going to be obedient to that gospel, that they will indeed bow a knee to Christ, that he will become their Lord and Savior. Yet many people are led in a sinner's prayer, so-called, that barely acknowledges that the person is a creature standing before a holy creator. I have seen it done where the person is not even asked to bend the knee to Christ. They stay in their seat. Or perhaps they stand and repeat some words a preacher gives them. And I trust that in some cases, if the faith was sincere, they are accepted by God. But I fear in many cases that person was just part of a ritual. Children at VBS or at youth camp, adults at an evangelistic meeting, many have gone forward. They've spoken to someone who is trained just that afternoon to lead someone in prayer. Then they sign a card and they're told that if they say that prayer and meant it, they have eternal life and are congratulated and given a slap on the shoulder. And yet many of them go forth and show what fruit in keeping with that repentance? Zero. These who cried out to John were not of that camp. They were not led to a point of making a decision. They were not asked to accept the teaching or accept Jesus. They heard a call to repent, and they sensed their own wretchedness. Why? Because God's Holy Spirit beckoned them. He snatched them out of their complacency and caused them to be regenerated to the point of receiving in full John's message, what then shall we do? And John answers and he tells them and we see those responses and evidence of true faith. So what do we do with this? God may indeed be calling you to put faith for the first time in Jesus Christ. Your response then to the message ought to be to pose the question for yourself. What then shall I do? you would join all of those who were spoken of and responded to the message of grace 
Perhaps you've said a sinner's prayer, perhaps many times, yet you never said it with sincerity, with a true fear of God and a true sense of your need and wretchedness. Perhaps you never humbled yourself before the throne of God and bent your knee to Jesus. Today is the day of salvation. You must ask with those many before you, those who are now part of that great cloud of witnesses, what then shall we do? Many of you indeed have come to Christ in true sincerity and with full assurance of faith, and yet you have lost your first love and have grown somewhat cold towards your Lord. You also may ask this question, what then shall we do? And Scripture will give you comfort as well. If you are truly one of his and you need to be reminded of that love and passion you once had, then you must ask him and commit to returning again to his word by which he confirms your faith and renews your mind. Ask him to restore to you the joy of your salvation. He will answer that prayer. Ask him for wisdom to live the life he's called you to. Ask for Holy Spirit empowerment to be able to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Ask and ye shall receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened for you. For the glory of Christ and for the sake of his church, may we ever learn to obey and apply these things. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you 